Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Jonah Ray. It's, it's a very serious story in my life that I've told therapists, uh, but I've never told a group of people. And I'm realizing right now the lack of laughs is really weird to me. <laughs> That and more. But before that, I just want to announce, hey, we have this very, very special show that the Story Studio, our school, is producing. It's going to be in August in New York City, August 18th. And we're looking for people to pitch us to tell stories at this show. The show is called In It Together, Stories of Strength in Diversity. We are looking for women, people of color, immigrants, people with disabilities, people from religious minorities, LGBT people, to pitch us their stories about embracing your uniqueness, finding the strength to effect change in your own life, in the larger world around you, stories of resistance, stories of standing for what you believe. So, it's called In It Together, Stories of Strength and Diversity. The show is on the 18th of August in New York City, and we're looking for pitches. Send your pitches directly to Cindy at thestorystudio.org. That's C-Y-N-D-I at thestorystudio.org. It's all a part of the Speak Up, Rise Up Storytelling Festival that will be taking place in New York in August, and we are very proud to be a part, very excited about that show. And I believe we will be featuring some of those stories on the Risk podcast eventually. Now, somewhat similarly, is this brand new podcast that we're big fans of over here at Risk I want to let you know about. It's called Make America Relate Again. Host Samia Mounts, a liberal Hillary Clinton voter, travels the country having compassionate, respectful political conversations with other women who voted for Donald Trump. Sammy has found a way to put the humanity back into political conversation by approaching her guests with genuine curiosity and the goal of greater mutual understanding. This podcast is a game changer for anyone who's been struggling with political despair. Do yourself a favor. Subscribe to Make America Relate Again, the podcast, on iTunes or Stitcher now. Check it out at MakeAmericaRelatePodcast.com and follow it on Twitter and Facebook at Relate Podcast. And by the way, Samia is a friend of J.C. Cassis, our producer, who approached us and asked if she could run an ad on the show. Maybe you have something you'd like to advertise on the show as well. You can always reach us at kevin at risk-show.com. But there's just one more 
sponsor to talk about up here at the top of the show. And JC Cassis is the lady to tell you about it. Hey guys, it's JC, resident woman on the risk team to tell you about a women's clothing advertiser. Whoop, whoop. ModCloth is your go-to spot for fashion that's as unique as you. Whip up your wardrobe with everything from quirky prints to classic silhouettes and everything in between. ModCloth believes that fashion is for every body size and shape, which I personally endorse because my body is very weirdly shaped and I need to understand what I can put on it to cover my genitalia, but also get through the day. I actually tried ModCloth myself and I ordered a super cute sweater that came just as pictured on the site. It looked great on me. It was a whole new silhouette that I'd never tried before, but I loved it and it came quickly in a cute little box, just like your ex-boyfriend. No, I don't know. <laughs> it came quickly. In a, okay, never mind. Um, so anyway, um, I enjoyed my shopping experience very much on ModCloth.com, and I think you will too. ModCloth's exclusive line of apparel comes in a full size range, from extra, extra, teeny, tiny, small to 4X. Snag all your summer essentials with this exclusive deal. Shop at ModCloth.com and enter promo code RISK at checkout, and you get 30% off your order of $100 or more. You know all us bitches love a discount. Make every day extraordinary at Mogcloth. Okay, that's that. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Blue Man Group behind me now. Holy shit, a lot of people don't know. I used to be a writer for Blue Man Group, and then people's responses always, but they don't say anything. Well, physical comedy needs authorship, too. In fact... It was our good friends over there at Blue Man Group who allowed us to use their recording studios to record the first episodes of Risk, the hosting segments before I learned how to do it at home on my own. I was doing it at Blue Man Group's recording studios. We weren't allowed to say that on those episodes, but if you go back and listen to them, now you'll know we were at Blue Man Group doing it. Michelle Walson who was the producer of the show way back when, in the beginning. She says she'd never forget how I showed up there to record that first episode, and I opened up my computer laptop bag, and she was kind of embarrassed because there in front of the Blue Man staff, I looked into my computer bag and said, Oh, there's my cock ring. That right there is an example of why people felt it would be better if I was doing this at home alone. You know, keep me away from the rest of the world. (laughs) Oh, and by the way, on the subject of me being out of my mind, we are still doing this. It's not a contest. It's just a thing where we're inviting people to go to our Patreon and check. There's a script there if you want to imitate me. A lot of people like to imitate me. They do their Kevin Allison impressions. We want to see if we can create an episode where the things that I normally say in the hosting segments would be crowdsourced. So it'll actually be snippets of you guys saying, hello, kids, this is Risk, and hey, guys, you know, this, that, and the other, right? So if you go to Patreon, you have to become a patron of ours, but hey, you could do that for as low as a dollar a month, you know? And there's a script there. Follow the instructions. Record yourself imitating me. Send it in, and eventually we're going to put together this big crowdsourced episode of people imitating me hosting the show. That's at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash risk. Now, we're calling this week's episode Pickles. These are three situations where people were stuck in a pickle, you know, like, oh my God, I could do this or I could do that. How do I get out of here? 
I've made a point that these stories be on the lighter side this week. I think this week and next week, we're going to keep the stories on the lighter side because last week's episode, Live from Seattle 3, especially that third story from Tim C., it was just, it was a lot. It was a lot. It was a very beautiful but very upsetting story. So you know we like to balance it out. We like to keep things you know, not so heavy all the time, even though we're very much willing to go into dark places. We also like to mix it up. So today, funnier stuff, lighter stuff, some tears, but kind of funny tears. (laughs) In a little bit, we're going to hear from New York-based actress Hallie Bullitt. But before that, a story that was told at our recent Portland show by Rob Lauda, and Rob was new. He was new at this, the true storytelling thing, and man, he really knocked it out of the park. Wonderful audience at Revolution Hall that night. Here he is now. This is Rob Lauda with a story we call The Streak. Hey, what's up, guys? All right. So it was the summer of 2003. It was a warm summer night. And at that moment, I was lying underneath a Dodge Caravan with my genitals butt naked. (laughs) A year before, my parents had moved us down to the Mojave Desert from Portland, Oregon. I loved it. I loved being able to go outside, not wearing a jacket, like being able to play outside and not run into mud. It was great. In that same year, I had just started middle school. So I was becoming a full-grown adult. Um, And in middle school, everybody thinks they know everything about everything. Between sex, between talking to your parents, between knowing your own freedom. And I was one of those people. And I started getting myself into bad things whenever me and my brother would ride our bikes to and from school. Um, Bad stints as in like going to mansions and kicking sprinklers and flooding their lawns or going into people's mailboxes and ripping all their mail together, especially if I seen like a birthday card. I'm like, fuck that. (laughs) And I just pedal off. I, I had this like moment of like invincibility where I thought that I could get away with anything. <laughs> and in that same thing of middle school, everybody's always ribbing each other about their sexual prowess and being like, who's having sex with who? When nobody's having sex with anybody. <laughs> Except for kind of me. <laughs> um, as a young gay man, you don't want to out yourself in middle school. That's like the worst time to out yourself. But I knew very, very early that I liked dick and <laughs> I like sucking it. <laughs> Um, on family outings whenever me and my parents would go to like catch crawfish and have like a little barbecue and everything, it was real cute. I would go to the restrooms and I found out this little thing that if you go to the restrooms of some dirty parks, you would see a beer can sized hole in the middle of the stall where you could see like another person like peeing or something like that or something if you acted like you wanted it, um, a mouth. Or an erect penis. (laughs) So as my 13-year-old self, I had taken myself up to blowing guys at parks while my parents were out cooking food. (laughs) Or on a few risky adventures, blowing people at rest stops on our way from California to Oregon or Oregon to California. I was invincible, guys. I could get away with anything. (laughs) <laughs> on one of my invincible nights I, that I wasn't so invincible um, at, my parents had fallen asleep my siblings had all gone to bed and everything like that and I'm, I'm being a good boy I'm doing my chores washing the dishes and taking out the trash when I pull out the trash bag and it breaks on me we've been there with just splatters and there's juices all over the place so I take it upon myself to take the trash out and wash out the trash can out in the front yard as I was walking out and just barefooted and just a shirt and a t-shirt, I feel the warm summer air all up on my body. And I don't know if it was just the air or a lot of freaking hormones, but I wanted to be naked. 
So I buttoned up the door, I set the trash can beside the hose, and I walked up the street about four or five houses to the middle intersection. And as I was going there, my heart was racing, that same race that I got after kicking sprinklers, or the same race I got out, out of like ripping mail. But tonight, people were gonna see my dick. <laughs> so I walked up, and I had my friend Sam, uh, Samantha's house right over here. She had some big bushes in front of it. So I stripped off my shirt and felt the air in my nipples. <laughs> felt great, I took off my shorts. Ooh, that felt even better. And then I took off my underwear. And then I shoved it all right in this, this big bush and walked out into the middle of the street in the turning intersection and started to just beat it. <laughs> just for any cars who could see me, I was gonna show them my prepubescent dick with barely any pubic hair. <laughs> And the funny thing about having all that rush and everything is, I could not get a hard-on to save my life. So, there's nothing sadder than a flaccid dick, but a, a flaccid 13-year-old dick? Just, come on, guys, just look at it. Just look at it. It was not working out for the best of me. But for some reason, I was getting the rush. And after about four or five cars had passed by, this was 11 o'clock at night, so there was, like, a lot of cars. Um, but there were some. Another car just parked right over where I put my clothes in the bushes. And it was a gray sedan with dark tinted windows. And I had a few thoughts like it went through my head. The first one was valid of being like, oh, this might be a neighbor. They might tell my parents. <laughs> the second one was, I can't get back home because he's blocking my path to get home and he doesn't know that. And the third one, the most prominent thought in my head was, this might be one of the guys I blew in the bathroom. And that scared me because as much as I was doing stuff like blowing guys, I would promptly run away and, uh, out of glory holes because it's better to run away <laughs> than to show you. So I'm like, hey, you just had a 13-year-old boy suck your dick. <laughs> so I didn't want to break it easy of psyche. But at this moment, I was really freaking worried that this guy might have been one that knew me. And he probably wanted me to get in his car. And although it sounded great because I had this great fantasy since second grade when they told you not to get in strangers' cars and don't accept candy. Oh, I wanted candy and I wanted some car dick. <laughs> but when it was finally my moment, my moment for candy car dick, it was scary because I wasn't ready for sex. I didn't know how to do anal. To me, it was like still gross. And how do, how do you stick things in your butthole? I don't know. So I made a smart choice and I walked away around the block. Because there's no other through street. Because in California, the suburban houses are all surrounded by concrete wall. So I make my walk around the block. And as I was walking down, the car pulls out in reverse and starts to follow me. And I don't know what to do. I'm barefooted and not a shred of clothing on my body. So I walk faster. And then I make a right turn. And he makes a right turn. And I'm like, oh, God, Robbie, now what, what have you got yourself into? So I start to get in a light jog. And he speeds up. And I sprint. And he starts going. So I make another right turn and duck behind a car and tuck underneath it. <laughs> The great thing about being a black man is you can hide really well in the night. <laughs> so he drives past and I see the headlights pass. I hold my breath, hold my breath, let it go. And then I see the headlights come back and I hold again. And then his lights turn back behind me, not to the other street he came from and goes away. And uh, my heart beats in my throat and I'm just, just hoping that nobody finds me. And then I see the headlights come back. And my black camouflage runs out when you see the bottom of my feet. So I don't know what to do, and I'm hoping he doesn't see me, and he doesn't. So he goes back onto the other side of the street and sits in the middle of the turning intersection. And I slide my genitals, trying not to scrape it on the concrete, <laughs> and just walk, get back out and then continue to walk down the block towards my house. 
I have to get my clothes back out of the bushes. So I walk past my house to those same bushes. And on this walk, it's that rush that I was having became really cold and really scary. And I didn't feel that invincible anymore. But then when I got back to those bushes, hormones are a bitch. <laughs> and that same thought said, Bobby, one more person can see your dick. So I ditch clothes back in the bushes and I go back to my intersection. <laughs> and I said, one more, and you go home and wash the trash can. One more. So up ahead of me is a four-way stop signs intersection. And a car comes into it, stops, and then hangs a left away from me. And as I see it in the distance, I go, shit, that's a cop. <laughs> but I'm like, ah. Rob, you got this. You got this. So another car comes. I was like, all right, get a hard on for this one. Get a hard on for it. And then it comes up to the intersection, then passes through, and I can see the light hit it. And the car says, Palmdale Police. And I'm like, that just happens to be a happenstance, Rob. Don't be dumb. <laughs> so uh, another car comes, and I'm like, all right, this is going to be it. Third time's a charm, and you go home. Stop, set the stop sign. And it turns my way, and I'm like, thank you, baby Jesus, here we go. <laughs> and as it's coming to me, my eyes adjust to the headlights, and then I see the plastic bar above the car, and I go, shit, that's a fucking cop car. So I book it, and I run, and I get my clothes back out of the bushes, and then I can hear behind me the rev of the police car go, room, and I'm like, shit. So I, I can't make it home, I can't run that fast. So I duck behind the house that is my friend Samantha's house. We're both in middle school. <laughs> and I throw my clothes on. And as I'm throwing my clothes on, I'm trying to think of an exit plan. And I hear above me, <laughs> two helicopters in the air. Because in the Mojave Desert, you live next to a plot of land, you can't drive cars in it. You need a helicopter. So now I have two spotlights I can see searching through the land in the distance. And I'm sitting beside one of those little plastic houses. <laughs> and I go, well, I can probably try to jump the wall, but I don't have shoes on. And they're all concrete, 10 feet tall walls. So I go with my last plan of action. I'm going to act my way through it. <laughs> and I go walk up to the police officer who has a spotlight towards the bushes and a gun. <laughs> and I walk in and I go, hey officer, what are you guys doing? <laughs> Best line, right? <laughs> and he immediately responds with a kind response of, get in the fucking car. <laughs> and I go, I don't, what are we doing? I just live here. <laughs> and he says, get in the fucking car. And as I'm sitting in the cold, hard plastic car, he goes, what are you doing out here? I'm like, um, I just, I'm just a neighbor, and um, I was dropping off a Pokemon game, boy game, in the lawn, and I threw it over there because I didn't want to knock, and it was late, and he says, bullshit. And I'm like, no, I swear, it's true, I live over around here, and he says, bullshit. And he goes, how old are you? And I'm like, 13. And he goes like, okay, well, you can have two different choices. You can either tell me the truth, and I can get you home, or you can continue to tell me this bullshit story and I can take you to jail. I wasn't ready for jail, just like I wasn't ready for sex. <laughs> so I told him the truth and I said, yeah, that was me <laughs> masturbating in the street, which of course he would know me because he was the person who saw my naked ass running away. And as, and as he's talking to me, there's two helicopter spotlights and a third one, which I think was the news, that was above my car. And I'm like, oh shit, I'm in trouble. So he says, where do you live at? And I'm like, that house down there. And he says, what's your address? I'm like, I don't know. I'm fucking 13. Do I send mail? And he, he berates me. I'm like, I, you'll just have to go up to that house and knock on the door and ask my parents, okay? So they do, and they tell my parents that I was masturbating in the street. <laughs> my, 
my mom was distraught. My dad didn't know what to do. <laughs> they just said, go to your room. Because <laughs> there's a manual of like, how to teach your kid how to ride a bicycle. Or these are the different ways to reprimand your child when they do this. But there's no handbook to tell you for masturbating in the middle of the street. <laughs> and my mom was like, it's because my nightgowns. I don't wear anything in my nightgowns. I was like, mom, it's because you're fucking genetics. <laughs> so I wish there was a moral to the story that I don't like doing this. But one of my favorite things is to break into public pools and skinny dip during the summertime. <laughs> I haven't got arrested for that yet. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> The fad of streaking has now hit the Northwestern University campus. Come take a look, everyone. Late last night, a number of students streaked along Sheridan Road in Evanston. Uh, it really brings everybody together, as you can see right here. And it'll bring everybody together tonight, when I'm sure everybody will take off their clothes and do it again. Can't you keep it in your goddamn pants? You people are disgusting! I guess I got kind of carried away. No fooling. Look at that. Beautiful, isn't it? No one wants to see your penis. It's just fun, isn't it? What do you think about the new fad streaking? I said, new fad? Woman, what's wrong with you? Us country folks been doing that all our life. She said, oh, well, what did you call it? I said, running naked. <laughs> Jerking off all night builds up your forearm. So when I was in college, I saw the show Stomp, and I was like, I have to do that. <laughs> you probably know the show. It's like eight hot percussionists make incredible rhythms using only everyday objects like garbage cans and toilet plungers. I just thought it looked so cool. I thought it looked like the dream job. Fast forward, 10 years later, I am in Stomp. I have managed to get myself cast in the New York company of Stomp. I'm on stage in the dark. I'm clutching a Zippo lighter as if my life depends on it. I am profusely sweating from stress. And I'm counting like one and two and three and four and five and six. And I'm just praying that I play my Zippo correctly. There's this incredibly complicated, syncopated rhythm in which I'm supposed to flick my lighter on and off in the dark. And if I do it exactly right, it will combine with my cast member's parts to make this delightful little number. If I play even just the slightest bit offbeat, or if I forget my pattern, or if my stupid lighter doesn't light, which fucking happens all the time, the whole thing will look and sound like shit and everyone on stage will be mad at me. In short, I fucking hate Stomp. <laughs> you know, I'm not a drummer, I'm a dancer, and I had already been working on and off Broadway, dancing in shows for years, and I had really enjoyed everything I'd ever performed in until Stomp. <laughs> My rhythm was good enough to get me cast in the show, which is no small feat. It's competitive. But my rhythm was just bad enough that playing the music was always going to be a struggle for me. It was like this nightly battle with these stupid props and, you know, at risk of sounding like a complete baby, the people there were kind of mean to me. <laughs> like, it's fine, whatever. They were probably just like, what are you even fucking doing here? And could you please play your toilet plunger in time with the music? <laughs> As someone that had always taken such pride in my work, you guys, it was like this day-in, day-out soul suck. And physically, it was no walk in the park either. You know, there's a guy there that had to get injections into the bottom of his feet because he'd worn out all the padding in them. You know, from stomping. <laughs> oh my God, I still have a hand injury from my time there. And get this, I still get pain in my eyeball sometimes from the time that I got hit in the face on stage with a broom and the broom bristles stabbed me directly in the eye. So by the time I left that show, I left with my body and my confidence pretty shattered. My mom had been a performer on Broadway when I was growing up, and I had been raised on and around the stage. I'd always felt like the stage was home. So leaving Stomp and feeling like 
I was grateful that I never had to get on that stage again. It was a real heartbreak. So it was in the throes of my post-stomp depression when I got an audition for this place called The Coral Room. It was in the West 20s. It was this really cool club slash performance venue, and they would have DJs some nights and live bands other nights. It had like a punk rock vibe or maybe like a 50s kitschy vibe. And every night they had a mermaid in a 9,000-gallon fish tank with tropical fish that took up an entire wall of the club. And that's what my audition was for. (laughs) Professional mermaid. (laughs) It's like ludicrous, right? Except that it does kind of make sense if you know me because I'm also the daughter of a former competitive swimmer. (laughs) My dad taught me to love the water, to be as comfortable in the water as I am on land. So I thought, Fuck it, why not audition to be a mermaid? It might be something I was strangely like bred to do. <laughs> I mean, I thought at least it would be something I was qualified to do, and I, after Stomp, that felt like it would be a relief. Like I said, this was like the coolest club at the time, so everyone is at this audition. There's like hot, tattooed, burlesque performers, and like beautiful older hippie ladies, and uh, girls in lingerie who clearly just think it's supposed to be like go-go dancing, but underwater. Uh, so before I even get a chance to get into the tank myself, I have to sit and watch a half hour of girls in push-up bras nearly drowning. <laughs> Like, I swear, half of them can't really swim. And one of them keeps hitting her head repeatedly on one of the support beams at the top of the tank. So by the time it's my turn, I'm nervous. And it's making it hard to take a deep breath, which is pretty important if you're going to hold your breath underwater. Not only that, but I'm really thrown because it turns out to be cold salt water. Duh. Because it's a functioning aquarium for actual fish. So when I put my head under the water, because of the salt and the lights, I can't really see. And I start to panic. I'm like, oh my God, is this going to be another dream job that I'm just going to suck at? And um, I have to lift my head above the water for a second just to collect myself. And I think, girl, this, swimming, dancing, these are the things that you're good at. And I took a deep breath. I lowered myself under the water again. And the world disappeared. It was so quiet under there. Like, I could faintly make out a bass line of the music that was blaring in the rest of the club. And yeah, I, I couldn't see well. But I could see the shape of the tank and these cheerful flashes of color as fish were swimming around me. There were no intricate rhythms to remember, no stress, just cool, tranquil water. And I flipped and glided around the tank for a few minutes, and when I got out, they told me I was hired. They not only told me that, but they said that I reminded them of the woman who was the original mermaid, Julie Atlas Muse. And if you don't know Julie Atlas Muse, she is the queen. She is like this brilliant performance artist. And when I heard that, I knew I wasn't just some underwater, shitty go-go dancer. (laughs) I knew I was a fucking mermaid. I basically got to design my costumes myself. I was told to go fabric shopping and pick out materials that I liked. Nothing with sequins that might come loose or like get breathed in by a fish. I just had to bring the materials to the seamstress who would construct my costumes for me. So I show up for my first shift with two gorgeous mermaid costumes tailor-made for me, like tails and tops that, I'm sorry, made the little mermaid's green tail and purple shell bra look like a bunch of bullshit. And uh, that first night, I just kept reminding myself the first rule of mermaiding, maintain the illusion, right? So there's no such thing as a mermaid, but it was all about just creating this illusion for just a moment that maybe mermaids could be real. So I was supposed to hold my breath for absolutely as long as I could, and when I needed to, just make my way subtly to the top of the tank, like it was part of my choreography, and just take in an unnoticeable sip of air. I had to be really careful not to let my tail drag at the bottom of the tank because that would kick up everything at the bottom and no one wants to see a mermaid swimming through a cloud of fish shit. (laughs) And the most important thing was that I wasn't supposed to spend too long in the tank, just like four or five minutes at a time, max. Because if you stayed longer than that, people might start to notice the seams in your costume or those little moments where you were taking a breath and you just didn't want to give them that time. You wanted to just appear, 
be magical, and get the fuck out of there. So I spent most of my shifts just hanging out in my dressing room, which was above the tank, up above the rest of the club. I'd climb a little ladder to get up there. And the tank was a lot like you'd see just at a normal aquarium. There was just one glass wall that the audience would watch my act through. And they could really only see the parts of me that were underwater. Anything that was above the water was backstage. And I had total privacy up there, which was a good thing, because the process of getting into my tail was like super awkward. First of all, I didn't want to wear a thong or anything under my costume because I thought it would show under my tail and look tacky. Also, once I had my tail on, I couldn't really walk because I no longer had feet. So when it was time for me to suit up, I had to lay on the ground naked and wriggle into my tail right next to where I would enter the water so that once I had my costume on, I could basically just like swing my tail over the side of the tank. And that's how I like to enter. I would sit at the edge and I would just tip my tail into the tank. And if people were out dancing or drinking by the bar, they might not even notice me at first. You know, just my tail swishing back and forth. And then I would slowly lower the rest of my body down into the water. And then people would come running from all corners of the club like, oh, it's the mermaid. And my performance was truly mine. It was my creation. I had this move that I would use like one hand to spin myself around super fast, like I was a tornado and my hair would be all swirling around me. I liked to blow kisses to the crowd and people would be like, oh my God, I think some mermaid's looking at me. But I told you I couldn't see shit in there. <laughs> and um, I felt alone in there. And it was lovely. It was so different from Stomp, where I'd felt all this pressure, and I really struggled to get along with my coworkers. I got along great with my coworkers at the Coral Room, you know, because they were all fish. <laughs> it was really easy, and it was easy on my body, too. All my old Stomp injuries were just like, eh, because all I had to do was float around in salt water. <laughs> but no job's perfect, right? Over the course of the time that I worked there, it started to change. It had started out as this really quirky, interesting place, but as it grew in popularity, it turned into more of like your standard sort of fratty Chelsea nightclub. In fact, a huge fight broke out there one night, like a Quentin Tarantino-style fight. It was like people being hit over the head with bottles and people being thrown over the bar. Me? I apparently didn't notice it at all. I was just swimming and blowing kisses through the whole thing. So, so the club uh, was changing and it was you know, attracting this more troublesome clientele, but I was just blissfully oblivious. I just wasn't part of their world. <laughs> I had one other problem there at the club, and it was really my own fault. I had a new costume made for myself, and I couldn't wait to unveil it uh, because I had found this stunning fabric. It wasn't like smooth like my other tails. It had all these gauzy layers that made it look really distressed and delicate. And when I tried it on, I felt like this ancient mermaid who'd been <laughs> forgotten at the bottom of the sea, like I was the Grizabella, the glamour cat of the ocean, like I was about to just break into the song Memory. And sure enough, when I wore it in the water the first time, I felt incredible. I mean, I'm doing my tornado move, and now not only my hair, but these layers of fabric are swirling all around me. And then I go to glide to the other side of the tank, and something jerks me back. And then I try to swim again, and I get jerked back again. And I can't see what's happening, but I think maybe one of these layers of fabric has gotten caught on a piece of coral beneath me. I'm stuck. I can't reach the surface to take a breath from where I am, and I'm starting to run out of air. But I keep my cool, you know? It's like hundreds of people watching me. I'm not gonna like freak out or anything. So I just like swish my arms around like, yeah, my act, it's still going on. And then I take one of my hands and I just yank my tail, but nothing happens. And it's slowly dawning on me that I'm gonna have to choose between public drowning or abandoning my tail. And this is the critical moment where I need to remind you that I was too good to wear a thong under my tail. So if I swim out of this thing, I'm gonna have to swim to the surface with my pussy out. <laughs> Which is not something I would normally say in public, but I figured this is risk, right? <laughs> People have definitely said worse on this show. So I do not want to lose my tail. Talk about breaking the illusion. <laughs> right. But I'm out of oxygen and I'm in 
full panic mode now. My body thinks I'm in the process of dying and I'm no longer keeping my cool. In like a last attempt to just save my dignity, I take both my hands, I grab my tail, and I like yank it as hard as I possibly can and it comes free. And I swim convulsively, violently to the surface where I just like hyperventilate for a minute while the audience stares at my limp, dangling body below the surface. (laughs) And when I get my shit together, I drag myself out of the tank. It's towards the end of my shift, so I just gather up my costumes and I sneak out of the club. I just couldn't imagine facing anyone that had just witnessed that fiasco. So needless to say, the costume retired the same night that it debuted, but not just because of its design flaws. I also got a call a few days later to say that the club was closing. There'd just been more fights, more problems. The cops wanted it gone. And thus ended my stint as a professional mermaid. But it was such a gorgeous, crazy experience. I'm so grateful for it. It wasn't Broadway, but it paid really well, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed telling people that I did it because I was proud of it. What had been so dispiriting about Stomp was just that I had never felt like I belonged there. I felt like a a fish out of water, if you will. I appreciate that the job that helped me get my groove back was literally getting to be a fish in water. And it actually was a huge part of why I got cast in the next off-Broadway show that I did, because that show, Fuerza Bruta, also involved water. And when I, you know, I nailed my audition because I'd already clocked hours and hours of performing in water. So, yeah, I was really grateful for that experience. I'd left Stomp feeling like I just couldn't handle maybe the pressure of being a performer. But after being a mermaid, especially after surviving that tail incident, I felt like I could handle anything. And I carried that with me for the rest of my career. Because first and foremost, I didn't die. (laughs) And secondly, while that audience may have seen me lose my cool, damn it, they did not see me lose my tail. This is Risk. This is Three Dog Night by me now. I heard this song recently and I was like, holy shit, I haven't heard that since I was like 10 years old. I forgot how much I like this song. And uh, before that, we heard from Hallie Bullet, who you can find at HallieBullet.com. That's H-A-L-L-I-E-B-U-L-L-E-I-T.com. There's actually some amazing photos of Hallie performing underwater there on her site. I didn't know that was there until just now. And before Hallie, we heard an interstitial from our episode editor, Jeff Barr, a little something about streaking, one of my favorite pastimes from my own childhood. And now, let's talk for a moment about Carvana.com. Do you remember the last time you bought a car? (laughs) What? Was it a good experience for you? You know, haggling with the salesperson there at the dealership. I spent an afternoon with a friend trying to buy a car at a dealership for hours, many hours, one Saturday. It sucked. I have never bought a car myself. I think I'd be too scared to, but... Then I learned about Carvana.com, the nation's leading online car company. Now, get this. You can buy a car online from over 7,000 certified company-owned cars, then have it delivered to you as soon as the next day, or you can pick it up at the world's first coin-operated car vending machine. (laughs) For real, a car vending machine. And every car comes with a seven-day return policy. You can see if the car fits your life and return it 
for a refund if it doesn't. It's way better than a 15-minute test drive. Plus, Carvana doesn't have all the salespeople and going to the dealership and having to pay for all that, right? So that means serious savings on the vehicles. You can skip the dealership, buy a car online. Check out Carvana.com slash risk to learn more. That's Carvana.com slash risk. C-A-R-V-A-N-A dot com slash risk. It's the new way to buy a car. Now, our final story on this episode comes to us from the amazingly funny and amazingly wonderful comedian Jonah Ray. Jonah has been in so many fantastic things recently. The new Mystery Science Theater 3000, amazing. Uh, he, he was the co-host of The Meltdown with Kumail Nanjiani that you know was hosted there at uh, Nerd Melt. He's a part of the CISO series, Hidden America. He's the host of Hidden America. He's been on Marin. Just a phenomenally talented and wonderful guy. This is a great example of a comedian who is not used to getting up on stage and telling serious stories, like risk-style stories, and just kind of nailing it. This is Jonah sharing the last time we were in San Francisco at San Francisco Sketchfest. So here he is now with a story we call High Fidelity. So I had just moved to California and my alarm goes off. My alarm goes off and I have my alarm on the other side of the room where I sleep because I'm good at hitting the snooze button without even looking or even waking the fuck up. I'm good at that. Just something starts to play, I smack it back in bed. So I put it across the room and I put it on the most obnoxious radio station I can. Radio is something people used to listen to. And I would put it on the worst radio station so I would be forced to hear the alarm, get up, walk across the room, turn it off, and then I'd be awake too late to go back to bed. So the alarm goes off. Butterfly by Crazy Town starts to play. And I hate that fucking song. Come, my lady, come, come, my lady. You're my butterfly, sugar. Baby. Baby. I get up so fucking fast, I get a head rush. I run across the room. But before I can turn it off, the song is ending out. Before I can turn it off, the DJ comes on. He's like, all right, all right. Just to reiterate, two planes have flown into the World Trade Center buildings in New York City. Now, I wasn't sure how to feel about that because it was already both planes that hit and yet this guy still felt the need to play Butterfly by Crazy Town. He thought that would lighten the spirits and so he played it. He says, the Madonna concert tonight is canceled. Disneyland is closed. Like, these are the things that people are going to be really upset about after what happened in New York. I didn't know what to do. A lot like any of us, I didn't know what to do. I heard the news, and then I booted up my dial-up internet and waited an hour and then saw a picture uh, about this big, and it looked pretty fucked up. And I had work. I had to go to work. So I just did what we all did, just like blindly and in a haze, go and do what we always did. I went to work at the record store I just got a job at in Venice Beach, California. And if you haven't been, don't. (laughs) So I go into work, 
at a record store. And this is 2001. I'm working at a record store in 2001. And this is not a good time to work at a record store. Not just 9-11. Just any time in 2001. Not a good time to work at a record store. Because the record industry is failing. And nobody's buying anything. And I worked at a record store owned by Bob and Nancy. And they were a married couple that ran a record store. And their relationship was pretty much dependent on how well the record store was doing. (laughs) Seeing as how Napster was in its heyday, their marriage wasn't doing the best. And so I would go in and I would have to deal with their failing marriage as I was trying to put up a poster for a new band called The Strokes. And it was just a real bad time to just be selling any kind of music. Also, it was September 11, 2001, which was also a Tuesday. And if you know about the record industry, it's new release day. So I get into work, and there's a lot of work to be done. And I have my boss, Bob, there. Was that the fake name I gave him, Bob? Was it Bob and Nancy? Sid and Nancy. We'll just say that. That'll be easier for me to remember. Sid and Nancy than any other fake name I come up with later. Sid is a bit like a very portly fellow. He, been, he, he pretty much is just, he's Jack Black from High Fidelity. He's loud. He's boisterous. He tells you what you're buying sucks to your face. And once that, when that movie was out and very popular, so people would come into the record store and be like, you guys ever seen High Fidelity? And he would go, get the fuck out of here, Bob. He would call people Bob. That's probably why he said his name was Bob. (laughs) And so I would go into work and I would start to put out all the new releases. And the thing is, it's like, this was still a weird time. You know, you remember that day. It was like, we all just kind of did what we normally did and we didn't know what to do. And we didn't know what we, that we had to do anything uh, you know, just because the terrorists, they were winning, and we didn't know that we had to do something un- un- until they, you know, it's like we just continued on. I'm also, I'm, I've never really told this story before outside of a uh, recording that I sent Kevin. So um, it's, it's a very serious story in my life that I've told therapists, uh, but I've never told a group of people. And I'm realizing right now the lack of laughs is really weird to me. <laughs> And the thing is, people just were doing their routine. That's, it was Tuesday. People came into the record store on Tuesday to look at the records that they would go home and then download. <laughs> so we were dealing with that where it's just, you know, like people would come in and go, oh, crazy, huh? What's going on out there? Boy, oh boy. How's that new Slayer album? Weird that it's called God Hates Us All, huh? <laughs> That was nonstop. Just guys coming in and referencing that there was an album called God Hates Us All and then being on their merry way. And then I would turn and get yelled at for not sweeping because their marriage was falling apart. Sid and Nancy. (laughs) Sid and Nancy were at odds. They were attacking each other like all the time and today was no different it's just a bunch of petty stuff they got into a big argument over um, the fact that they shouldn't be selling bongs (laughs) (laughs) Sid said we don't need to sell bongs we're a record store Nancy said we're a record store in Venice Beach we gotta give the people what they need (laughs) she walked out in a huff and we're just silently doing what we always did on that day. Just putting records into the shelves and just trying to deal with what happened. It was just an odd day. We're like making no sales, by the way. No sales. And then later into the evening, a cute little punk rock couple comes in. You know, a little punk rock love. A little young, high school age, sharing earbuds, listening to the Smiths. Punk rock love. They were adorable. And they come in, And then they just start kind of like grabbing stuff and putting stuff on the counter. And it's really neat to see that. There's these two kids that aren't letting the world events ruin their fun day of getting new records, being in love, listening to depressing Morrissey songs. (laughs) 
they were having a blast and they just start getting stuff. We're like, oh wow, look at this. And they, they, they're like piling up stuff. And like, we're, they're talking to us and we're talking about music and say, oh, you like that? You should get this, so on, et cetera. And then when they are done getting everything they want, it's like a lot of money. It's like, you know, it's like a, almost 200 bucks. And so they give us a credit card and we're talking. My boss runs a credit card. We put it in the bag. See kids around. Hey, love does exist. <laughs> couple minutes goes by and my boss goes, you know what? Ah, I feel like I should have checked the ID on that credit card. <laughs> and I go, hey, there's better things to really concern yourself with now, being as the world is ending and all. He's like, nah, it's, ah, it's going to bug me. I hope that doesn't bite me in the ass. I was like, I'm sure it's fine. About an hour later, the young punk rock lovers come right back in. Oh, he's wearing a tight dead boy shirt. She's just wearing a Smith shirt, louder than bombs. Oh, God, they're so cute. And then they just start getting tons more shit. They're just grabbing entire racks of records and just putting it on the counter. Shirts, what's that thing? Is it expensive? Put it in the pile. And my boss is just like, oh, fuck. And so he goes to the girl who's close to us in the front of the store and the boy is in the back and he goes up to the girl and he says uh, he's like hey ah, god I'm so sorry about this I would really like to see that ID that you used uh, for the, with the credit card I'd like to see the ID that matches that credit card she's like oh yeah yeah totally got it yeah don't worry about it and then she does a quiet scared long walk to the other side of the record store and then just leans in to the ear of her punk rock lover and then my boss just turns to me and he's like, lock the doors. <laughs> and then so I start locking the double doors. I get one done and my boss kind of starts coming over to help me with the other. And then he turns and then we turn and then the kid, the, the boy, just sprinting. Sprinting, trying to get out of the store, leaving his lover behind. <laughs> who was, I, I don't remember clearly, but I'm pretty sure she was doing just like, what, what the fuck? He tries to squeeze out of the door. My boss grabs his hair, throws him on the ground, locks the door, jumps on top of him, and starts screaming at him. He's like, why the fuck would you do this? Why would you do this? And then the kid's like, "Ah, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He's like, why the fuck would you steal from me, from my family? Why would you make it so I can't feed my kids? Why would you do this? Why? Why? And the kid's like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry. And then my boss starts to cry. Sid starts, he's like, why would you want to not make it so I can feed my kid? These Strokes records aren't going to send her to college. And the kid's just like, I'm so sorry. And the kid starts to cry too. The young punk rock kid in the dead boy shirt is just, just going, I don't know, I'm so sorry. And then the kid hugs my boss. And they're just there crying in the middle of the store. The girl starts to cry. I start to cry. Because I'm 20 and I don't know how to handle real shit yet. And we're all going, oh, fuck, what a fucking shitty day. And then my boss pushes him away. He's like, I want my shit back. You bring my shit back. And my, the kid's like, we'll go get it. We'll go get it. And he's like, okay, go. And then they both start to leave. He's like, no, you stay. The girl goes and gets him. <laughs> and so we let the girl out. And then we're waiting there. My boss has the, uh, his cordless phone for the business in his hand. And he's pacing back and forth like this is a hostage situation. <laughs> Like he's going, he, and like he's like walking back and forth. He's like pounding it on his head, like it's a gun. And like he's just like, and like he's like, she's not coming. She's not coming. He starts to dial nine one one. The kid's like, no, 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 no. She's coming, man. She's coming back. Oh, we love each other. We love the shin. She's coming back. And then like he like he would hang up the phone. Then he'd do it again, back and forth, back and forth. And then finally she comes back. And then she puts all the stuff on the counter. My boss goes through the receipt puts everything back in, everything is accounted for. He slams the register shut, it makes a ding sound, and then he looks up at them, smiles, and goes, thanks a lot guys, come again. <laughs> and then he turns to me, he goes, you could take off an hour early if you really want to. <laughs> and I did, and I just cried the rest of the night. Thank you so much everybody.
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Portugal, the man behind me now, and we just heard from Jonah Ray. Now, I need to give a little shout out here to our latest Patreon patron who has given us $25 or more, and that is Shannon O'Reilly. Thank you so much to Shannon. And listen, you too can help keep Risk running. If you go to patreon.com slash risk, you can give a dollar a month, $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever it is, you will become a part of our Patreon community. You'll have a lot of bonus content. You can participate in all kinds of like activities we have going on there. There's prizes if you give, you know, a certain amount, all sorts of opportunities to get more involved and help keep this running. If you go to patreon.com slash risk. Now I want to let you know where risk is appearing live next. On June 30th, we are back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. June 30th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. That's going to be a phenomenal show. On July 1st, we're at the Mass Mocha Museum in North Adams, Massachusetts. Mass Mocha North Adams, Massachusetts, on July 1st. On July 8th, we're in Washington, D.C. On July 15th, we're in Philadelphia. Now, uh, let's see. Philly, I think we're still taking pitches for that one, even though we got a ton of them. That's July 15th in Philly at the World Cafe Live. The theme that night is Revelation. On July 15th, we are back at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. July 15th at the Bootleg in Los Angeles. On September 9th, we're in Salt Lake City, Utah. The theme that night is Unexpected. September 9th, Salt Lake City at the Urban Lounge. The theme is Unexpected, and you can pitch us if you go to the submissions page at risk-show.com slash submissions. Remember, you can pitch us at the submissions page at risk-show.com from anywhere in the world, no matter whether we're coming to your town soon or not. On the submissions page, there's a video where I explain what we're looking for on a pitch. And if you go to our SoundCloud page at Risk Show on SoundCloud, there's a free lecture you can listen to me giving on the magical ingredient that brings any story from good to great. It's tips that we give to everyone who tells stories on risk. Go to SoundCloud and look up. It's called What Every Risk Storyteller Should Know. It's about a 48-minute lecture that I give and great advice on how to tell a story. Listen to that and then pitch us by going to the submissions page at risk-show.com. Folks, Today's the day. Take a risk. Ooh, I'm a rebel just for kicks. Yeah, your lovers and a piss for my heart to eclipse now. Might be over now, but I feel it still. Ooh, I'm a rebel just for kicks now. I've been feeling it since 1966 now. Might be over now. Oh, no. Back!